I'm Richard Bond, and I am the producer and director of the Tupac Assassination movies. Over the last 12 years, I have learned a lot about Tupac, and I'd like to share with you what I know. Hey everybody, it's RJ Bond, and welcome to another episode of What I Know. This is the show where we get together and we chop it up about all things Tupac and his life and his history and his death and the investigations surrounding his death. And I see that there are a couple people out there doing more documentaries again. They're doing their YouTube documentaries and getting Greg Kading involved with it. I see all that. So uh, I've gotten some calls about it. Yes, I've seen it. So we'll, and we'll talk about that in another show. But today we're going to talk a little bit about badass and, and, uh, what uh, he meant to the hip-hop community uh recently he passed away a couple days ago and uh daz dillinger and a lot of people that are in the uh, long beach scene and the uh, dog pound scene which badass was kind of a uh once removed kind of member of kind of like second cousin type of thing uh he was part of that so he's being remembered well and spoken of well and uh, I actually had uh, the guy that I go to whenever I need information on it is, is J-Mix, uh, Jesse. And, uh, you know, the one thing I can say about Jesse is that, you know, for 10 years he's had one a hell of a channel, a YouTube channel, where there's not too much about Tupac or any of the engineers that work with him and or any of the family members where you just couldn't get some good information and get a good video. I mean, I know I helped him a lot and gave him some stuff, but... You know, that's what you do for friends. You help them out and all that. So uh, I had a chance to talk with Jesse a little bit, and he filled me in a bit about Badass and, and really what his contribution was. And for those of you who don't know, this is a good rap. So take a listen. Thank you for coming on the show, man. And a lot of people have been asking about you and talking about you, and I kept saying we wanted to get you on the show here eventually. Uh, but I'm glad that you do, and thank you for coming on, because I, you know, I can't confess that I know as much about Badass as a lot of people do, but I wanted to give a quick shout-out to him for a minute and uh, pay a little bit of a tribute to him. So, Jess, maybe you could tell me a little bit about Badass, and, you know, I know that you, you had a relationship with him, so why don't you tell me a little bit about it? It's no problem, RJ. It's good to be on the show, man. I've been listening to your podcast. It's really good. Um, shout out to everybody that's been asking me to come on. Uh, just a little press for time. Concerning Badass, on a personal level, Badass was a real good dude. Uh, his name was Jamar Stamps. Um, and he was one of the first people that I inter- He was one of the first people that I ever interviewed. And uh, I just hit him up. And he was one of those dudes that was just really cool with his fans. I mean, he kind of knew that people knew him for the Machiavelli stuff that he did with Tupac. Um, he was featured on the song Crazy, which was released on Machiavelli. And uh, he was on a couple unreleased joints that never really got published, like Untouchables. And he even did a remix of the song Ghetto Star, which was originally a nutso track. Nice. In the early 90s, um, he, he was an up-and-coming rapper. Um, I wouldn't exactly say that he was a part of the uh, DPG, Downtown Gangsters. He was more of a hanger-on. And his uh, career didn't really take off until about five or six years after Tupac died. But during the course of this, um, him being around these guys, uh, talking about Dog Pound and uh, the Crip side of Death Row, you know, uh, Tupac liked up-and-coming rappers, and he, Tupac was one of the first people to actually give him a shot. 
So the songs that we hear uh, that were released, um, like on Machiavelli's album, the crazy single, I, I, this is another instance of Tupac just giving an up-and-comer a chance. Yeah, he did that a lot. Yeah, absolutely. It was one of his favorite things to do. If you listen to Outlaw from, uh, you know, Me Against the World, you know, he put a, a, a little 12-year-old kid on called Ra-Ra to do the song uh, just because he met him on the street. It's a similar situation with Badass. I mean, what happened in 96 is he was just in the studio at the time visiting, you know, his other friends from DPG, and he was able to be put on this song, Crazy, which is, you know, one of the better songs from the Magnolia Project. Um, currently, according to Badass, uh, Tupac, which he had done with many other people, offered him a chance to be on Machiavelli Records, which we both know, RJ, that this was never something that ever took off because, unfortunately, Tupac was killed in 1990. Right, it never never happened. Yeah. But he was featured on, uh, not to repeat myself, but he was featured on Crazy, Untouchables. Um, when his career got going, springboarded um, by the Machiavelli album and the death of Tupac, it really didn't start going until about 2001, and he had an album that dropped called Personal Business, and his biggest single to date is a song called Wrong Idea, and that had Snoop Dogg and Cocaine and even Little Half Dead on it. Right. What's really important about Badass and the conversations that I had with him is he was one of the first people to air out the rift or beef with... Uh, the dog pound side of death row versus Shug's blood side of death row. He was the first one to call out a slight bit of jealousy from Snoop and uh, Tupac's interactions with rappers such as Corrupt that he didn't especially get along with. And another point about Badass is Badass was jumped by Suge Knight when Suge Knight first got out of prison after his little nine-year stint. So his relationship with Suge Knight wasn't so great. But what made Badass um, who he was was he was a real dude. He was willing to call out the fact that, you know, Tupac wanted him to go to Vegas. And he approached Daz and he said, hey, you know, Daz, they just recorded this song for Machiavelli. He's like, Tupac wants me to go to Vegas. And he was living with Daz at the time. And Daz told him, why the hell would we want to go hang with those guys right and we're not talking about we're we're not talking about the infamous don't go to vegas thing conspiracy wise we're just talking about he said hey why would you want to do that they we don't we don't see what they see exactly yeah this was just the the rift that they didn't want to hang out with each other right so you know when they knew that tupac was going to be performing at club 662 you know tupac was uh, offering to a lot of people to go to Vegas with him. You know, he wanted to put on a big show. It was one of his, you know, biggest lineup live shows that, you know, he was trying to make a splash with, and he offered a lot of people to go. And when Badass was offered to go, um, you know, pretty much because he was living with Daz, Daz told him, hey, we don't want to hang out with those guys. And reluctantly, Badass had to tell Pac, and just like he told me, and there's a clip on one of my interviews, he said, you know, to go tell Pog, hey man, you know, I just, I really can't do it. Um, so, so when it comes to Badass, I mean, he's one of those artists that always knew 
that most people knew him for his Tupac features, and he would always reach out and respond to fans because he knew that Tupac was in rap and in that circle. Tupac is a big name, and he embraced He wasn't one of those guys that shied away from it or thought he was bigger than that. He really embraced it and always thanked Tupac for actually putting him on. I started off rapping because I, I listened to a lot of rap music when I was in um, like elementary school. And um, before I wanted to rap, I actually wanted to act. And I, I got into rapping because I think it was a little easier transition from, you know, all the things that I knew about entertainment versus just trying to go act and I didn't know anything about it. And I felt like I had a little more opportunity in music and rapping, you know, than um, acting. So I, I just went for the rapping, but I really had a love for music um, all my life. And, you know, as you can see, it became something that I've been doing for almost 20 years. So it, it was, I did have a great love for music, but like I said, I actually considered being an actor first. And then when I when I really start, you know, tapping into the music, I really fell in love with it. What was the first song you ever rapped on? Um, I mean, the first song professionally was Beware of My Crew. That came out in 95 on the thin line between Love and Hate soundtrack. But um, a few years before that, I probably recorded my first song. And um, I can't actually remember the name, but um, it was it was one of about four songs I did um, with a couple of buddies from the Low Life crew. How did you start? How did you start rapping on Death Row Project? On what? Death Row Project. How did I start rapping on, de like, the label Death Row? Yeah. Snoop Dogg brought me to Death Row. He um, actually was starting his imprint under Death Row, Doggy Style Records, which, you know, a lot of controversy came through that situation. And, you know, we ended up kind of severing our ties with Death Row around that time. But... That's basically how I was brought to death row by Snoop Dogg. Um, it was actually a great experience. You know, I didn't really, I didn't, I was on the inside looking out, so I didn't really see it how everyone seen it. I knew that I was in a grand situation, you know, to be around Snoop Dogg and Tupac, and, you know, I, I seen the numbers that we were doing and Snoop was doing, and, you know, I seen the effect from, you know, just live performances and, you know, just doing some of the stuff we did. So, I mean, I, I did feel like I was in a great position, but it's a little different even now to look back at those times. Like, I'm way more of a fan of those days now than I was then because I was creating that, that you know, that energy. It was shortly after he got out of jail, shortly after he signed with Death Row. It was a couple of days after he came to um, Can-Am Recording Studios, which was a Death Row recording studio. And um, I had spoke to him on the phone like a week before through Snoop. He had called Snoop. Uh, Should put him and Snoop on the phone together. And um, 
you know, I had mentioned to Snoop that that was one of my favorite rappers at the time, and Snoop was kind of surprised because we were so close in age, and, you know, Pac was big at the time, but I wouldn't say that he was the biggest rapper. And I have nothing uh, but positive things to say about Mr. Stamps and AKA Badass, and it's just really tragic that he passed. Uh, like, Tupac had a couple favorite independent artists, and Badass actually was one of those. Yeah. Well, yeah, and and the unfortunate thing is where he was living when he died is basically a trailer park, and uh, between me and you, like all these people that like Snoop and Daz and everybody, they're you know they uh, oh rest in peace, man, they weren't picking up the phone for him. So tell me what happened. I mean, what happened with Badass? How did he how did he die? Well, obviously, I'm going from secondhand information, but from everything that I've been told through my contacts is he was arrested for a domestic battery uh, concerning his girlfriend. Uh, he was jailed under a $10,000 bond, and that's a cash bond. Um, and from the streets, and I, I mean no disrespect to Badass right here or Mr. Stamps, but from everything that I've heard is he had an addiction problem um, of the opiate type, and when he couldn't post his bail, they found him at 5 a.m., one morning and on November 11th, and they're saying that he just died of heart failure. And unfortunately, when people, you know, have substance problems, you know, withdrawals can be, you know, pretty gruesome, especially at the age of 43. And uh, they believe, and everything that I've been being told, is that the withdrawals, worked a heart attack with high blood pressure, and he died of heart failure early in the morning uh, before he was checked on. Uh, and Dude, now I, yeah. I... Go ahead. That's crazy. No, I was just that's crazy. Absolutely. And, you know, the, the thing is, is he was probably an hour away from being checked on at that point, and a lot of people are, are screaming foul play, but I think, you know, as, as we all get older in life, we tend to see things that, you know, badass wasn't a threat to anybody, but, you know, sometimes a an addiction, you know, if left untreated or not under medical care, you know, withdrawals can cause, you know, they have a lot of inmates, and unless you go in the jail and declare that you're on a substance, they're not going to just give you medical treatment. You have to request it, and, you know, some people... I not think that their situation is that bad until it's too late. And it's a, it, it's a tragic thing because he was a very nice guy. He loved his fans. But I think that the accusations of foul play might be misdirected. That's a lot of love, man. Thank you for thank you for sharing that. And I know that everybody appreciates you how you break things down, man. It's always been a gift that you've got, brother. Uh, what are you doing these days, man? What's been keeping you busy? You know, just a lot of work. Uh, we relocated uh, about a about 18 months ago, and uh, just doing the normal family thing, living the best life that I can. You know, uh, I love my YouTube channel. I still put up content from, the, uh, you know, every now and then, but I'm looking at my 40s, and I just just want to spend time with my family and do what's important. Well, kids grow fast. You know, kids grow fast, dude. I know that. And you turn around one day and they're grown. Yep. And, you know, one of my favorite rappers when he died, he was 25 years old. And I'm looking at 40. And I still appreciate his music. And I and I love the community. But 
I feel like anybody else that there comes a time that you got to focus on you and yours. And I think that's what we all should do at a certain point. And it's not that I don't have any love for Tupac or the community. It's just I'm focused more on making it work for the fam and just living the best life I can. Well, that's more than anybody could ask, dude. I know we, we talk from time to time, and uh, I'm always hearing good things and keeping up with you, dude. So I'm, I'm very happy with where you're at, man. So, listen, uh, thank you so much for uh, chiming in, brother. I, it's always good to hear from you, and I'm going to yank your chain from time to time to come on the podcast and keep everybody up to date on your uh, your current who's and what's and what you're up to, okay? Absolutely, RJ. I've been enjoying it so far. I love to listen to you talk, and uh, anytime, man. There can only, there can only be one, one. There can only, there can only be one, one. There can only, there can only be one, one. There can only, there can only, only be one. You can lie, da 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 da. Oh, you won't lie, da 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 da. Oh, you won't lie, da 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 da. Oh, you won't lie, da 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 da. Oh, you won't. Tell me what the business is. Copying the style, let the Lord be the witness to these rappers run wild. What you know about tats? Thugging on the block. Still hit the streets and you know you get shot. Stop acting like Pac. Playing with a bomb, get stumped out quick when you dealing with the Don. Big on the trigger, yeah, I'm riding for the president. Pac ain't like none of y'all, it was happening. How the hell did these niggas even get up in the game? Acting like thug life running through their veins. Then they make it to the top and they never shot his name. Not a house of real in your blood, homie, it's a shame. Four, five, in their mouth, G's don't name. You can make it rain. Till you're really in the rain And I'm talking to any rapper that's sitting on your brain If the dime was alive, then you know he say the same There can only, there can only be one There can only, there can only be one There can only, there can only be one There can only, there can only, only be one You can lie, da 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 Oh, you won't lie, da 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 Oh, you won't lie, da da Alright, so Yes, Suge Knight's back in the news. Of course, he's he's kind of always in the news. Every couple, three weeks or so, something pops up. And it's usually in the UK, and it's usually from The Sun or The Mirror, one of the UK tabloid rags. Um, I know many of the reporters there, uh, they sought out when we were doing Battle for Compton. They sought out a lot of um, information from us. And, you know, they're actually pretty helpful in promoting the movie and keeping the name of the movie out there. And, uh, you know, I wouldn't be surprised if some of you actually saw that when you first, um, your first contact with uh, Battle for Compton was through one of those papers. But, you know, they're, they're constantly putting new things out about it and, and uh, you know, and, and they're not afraid to talk about anything. They don't take any one side of it. One day they'll be talking about Battle for Compton, the next day they'll be saying Tupac's alive. So it's just kind of weird. They don't really take a stand on it. I'm not doing as much business with them as I used to in terms of, giving them information or working with the the reporters there uh because in you know in all honesty I mean, out of the same same words that they're saying hey uh documentary filmmaker says he's got a big bombshell they turn around and say hey tupac's alive and blah 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 anyway so it looks like they're back at it again and they got suge in the news and the article says that uh Hollywood actor Tom Sizemore, and uh, you know Tom Sizemore, he was in, uh, I think he was in a couple of uh, Quentin Tarantino movies, Uh, he's a character actor, um, he's had a history of having some pretty big drug problems, Uh, he was in uh, Saving Private Ryan, Uh, you know, a a lot of movies, you'd recognize him, but he's a pretty well-known Hollywood actor, I wouldn't say he's A-list, but he's probably B-minus-list, so he's... uh, a name that you don't know necessarily, but if you saw the guy, you probably know who he is. Anyway, it says that uh, he um, 
Once told the FBI that, that Suge Knight arranged to have rappers and Tupac and Biggie killed. That's what uh, Tom Sizemore uh, claims. He claims that uh, Suge Knight had both Biggie and Tupac killed. And uh, it looks like in a transcript of a 2004 interview between Sizemore and the FBI about the Biggie and Tupac murders, uh, the actor said that he first met Suge Knight at an AA meeting. Okay, and that's kind of a, a dubious start right there. But uh, <clears throat> but uh, he said that uh, it was during a 2001 meeting in a nightclub. A gang member who went by the name of Eight Ball told him that Knight had arranged for hip hop stars Biggie and Tupac to be killed. He said he knew of a former gang member who had information on the shootings and would try to give the FBI the details. Sizemore adds in the transcript that he would again help the agent shut down a crystal meth warehouse after his teenage sister became addicted from the drugs that were being produced there. Like I said, the son says that Sizemore will, the, said that the FBI documents they received uh, say that Sizemore will wear a wire to provide any information to help solve the Biggie Smalls murder as well as lead the FBI to take down the largest crystal meth warehouse in California, which he stated is being run by the Mexican Mafia. The Sun says that the interview with Tom Sizemore and the FBI was part of an FBI file into the case, and I'm not sure if they're talking about the B.E. Smalls of the Tupac case, uh, obtained by movie producer Don Sikorsky, who's been researching Biggie's murder for a movie. And I'll talk about Don Sikorsky. I think actually what I might do is pend off Don Sikorsky uh, until the next show, because there's a lot going on there that ties into Randall Sullivan, that ties into City of Lies. Uh, Sikorsky is a guy who's a Hollywood producer who's had uh, a hand in making a couple of documentaries uh, on network TV, a couple of those series, docu-series about Tupac or Biggie. Uh, seems to be a little bit more on Biggie, but more importantly, uh, Sikorsky is the one who has um, the FBI agent that uh, uh, recently you know, has come out and was talking about the murders that, that would be agent Phil Carson with the FBI and Sikorsky and Carson kind of have a, I don't know, somehow he's got, he's got Phil Carson tied down with a contract or something that keeps Phil Carson from talking to a lot of people. I actually have an interview with Phil Carson and uh, uh, happy to, uh, to get that out. Uh, but I think what we'll do is we'll, we'll kind of pen that off for a minute, but Sikorsky gave the son these documents and in it, the FBI back in 2004 did an interview with this Sizemore guy and Sizemore said that he would wear a wire and he'd get Suge Knight to admit that um, that he, you know, caused both murders. Well, I guess that never happened. Sizemore never wore a wire. And, of course, we still are left with the unsolved murders of Tupac and Biggie. Anyway, so that's kind of the news that came out this week. And, again, I'm, you know, I'm dubious to Tom Sizemore, period. You know, he's, uh, you know, he's had so many drug problems and been arrested and just been on the bad side of things for so long. I'm just really not sure how credible he is to begin with. But at any rate, it's out there. And um, this led me to talking a little bit about another piece of news that came in, Suge Knight related, and that was a video that uh, our friend Shock G uh, dropped uh, for me, and in it he talked about a um, piece that came out a while back from MTV. This is when Tupac was still alive. They were interviewing him, and apparently pieces of that interview weren't aired, and maybe there was some extra stuff in there, maybe some other parts of the interview that weren't originally aired. Well, somebody actually pointed out to Shock G that Tupac was quoted in that interview with MTV that Shock G went and visited him in jail. And Shock G thought that that was important because um, there were people saying that 
no one was visiting, visiting Tupac in jail. And I think, in fact, even Tupac kind of alluded to that, that nobody visited him in jail. And that actually just wasn't true. Well, when I mentioned Digital Underground to you yesterday, you were like, duh. No, because it just brings back, like, silly. Yeah, I guess it's I mean, embarrassing, too, but it's all funny to me. It's all good. The, the silly parts is, like, me running around in zebra print underwears and uh, making simulated sex with blew-up dolls and... <laughs> Just, we had like the funniest, craziest show. I think hip hop need another digital underground right now. Do you ever talk to any of them anymore? No doubt, Shock G. He was involved with me against the world. He came to see me in jail. He did? Yeah, no doubt. Uh, but most importantly, and this was in an interview that was done with, with Jesse with, uh, on the J-Mix channel, uh, with Jesse and Suge Knight. And Suge Knight actually made a lot of really interesting claims about his relationship with Tupac while Tupac was in jail, how many times he visited with Tupac when he was in jail, most accounting from what I understand and what I know, and that's what this show's called, what I know, most of the accounting of it is that Suge visited Tupac in jail one time, and that was when he and Kenner showed up for with the contract, the Danamora contract, the infamous handwritten contract that was scribbled down on a piece of paper by Kenner, uh, and uh, was was given to Tupac. Tupac signed it, and you know, then shortly after there, he got out. That, but Suge Knight only actually went to his house one time. That's what I've. That's what I know from many many sources, and I have yet to see anything that proves otherwise. But if you ask Suge Knight, Suge Knight says that not only did he visit Tupac in jail, <clears throat> but he didn't visit Tupac as Suge Knight in jail. Apparently, he went with the attorney, and of course, he's. As always, you know, the facts are kind of vague in Suge Knight land uh, that he, he went with, quote unquote, the attorney and went to visit Tupac. And he pretended dressed up in a suit and pretended to be the attorney's paralegal because in many prisons, the only way that you can uh, see a prisoner is if you are the attorney and the attorney is allowed to bring a paralegal or allowed to bring a legal assistant with him. And Suge Knight is saying that he dressed up in a suit and Suge Knight in a suit was a paralegal. Now, I have a bridge in, uh, you know, in New York, Brooklyn, I think it is, that I would be happy to sell you if you really believe that Suge Knight dressed up in a suit would in any way, shape or form pass the sniff test at a guard, any guard, that Suge Knight would pass the sniff test as a paralegal working for some attorney. And again... We're really not sure what attorney he's talking about because there's no record of David Kenner ever going to the prison. And Tupac's attorney at the time was Watini Tanyumba. And Watini was Tupac's attorney, and Watini had no love for Suge, no respect for Suge, didn't, didn't he like Suge, and, uh, you know, was not, uh, wasn't feeling that. And so there's no way in the world that Watini Tanyumba would have used Suge Knight as a paralegal to sneak him in to talk to Tupac. So... Uh, I'm going to play that clip for you so you guys can hear it. And, and, and here's here, here's Shug Knight laying out some more BS. You know, I mean, the first time we went there, we had to, we flew the private plane from L.A. to New York. Then we had to fly a smaller plane from New York to the area we had to go to the visit by the prison. So we had to take a jet because a big plane can, you know, wouldn't be too big. Then we had to take a hour and some limousine ride from the, from the jet. I went to see Pac. I was I was in suited up and I was a paralegal. You know what I mean? That's how I got in with the lawyer. So there you have it, Suge Knight laying it out again, saying he was a paralegal and then they're visiting him. And you know, of course, the other allegation that he makes in this interview 
that was released was that nobody was putting any money on the books of Tupac Shakur. In other words, all these people were visiting him, but they weren't putting any money for him and they weren't putting any money on his account or on his books. And if you don't know what that means, in the prison system, if you want to give money for, to an inmate for buying things at the commissary there, buying uh, deodorant, toiletries, food, other uh, kinds of food, and then what they sell in the cafeteria, cigarettes, things like that. And I, don't have, I don't even know if they sell cigarettes anymore in ca cafeteria. I haven't been to prison, so I couldn't tell you. Um, but at the same time, uh, that money is put on your books. And uh, that's what it's called, putting money on your books. And you, you use a service and you give them the service money and the service applies it to the account of the person in prison. And Suge Knight says that no one put any money on Tupac's books. He said Jasmine Guy didn't put any money on Tupac's books. Uh, Madonna didn't put any money on Tupac's books. That they all were well-wishers, but they really didn't take care of Tupac by not putting any money on their books. When Rock went to prison, he took all the people he helped and he, all the people he fucked with on business that hard they let him down. Like, uh, say like uh, Innisco people, Sean Wiley, who's over the state, a certain artist. He didn't, he was to talk about the letter with, uh, <clears throat> that Madonna, Pac was so pissed because he was telling Madonna never came to see me. She never put now one dollar on his books. When he, when he reached out for me to come see him, he didn't have money for, not, he was not alone commissary, he didn't have hygiene. You know what I mean? He didn't have shit. And all these people. This call is being recorded. My lover, Madonna, nope, didn't give him put none on his books. Uh, Jasmine guy didn't put nothing on his books. And so he was saying, man, uh, I'm not going to rap no more. I'm going to live out the bitches. I said, well, tell me one of these bitches who's making sure you eat. He said, you're right. None of them. I got to be honest with you. I mean, you know, I, I, don't, I don't even think that passes the sniff test. Maybe it's true, but I kind of doubt it. Uh, I don't think that uh, Atron Gregory and Shock G and some other people, Layla Steinberg and... Tracy Robinson and all them would have not given Tupac money while he was in jail or put money on his books. Now, now that being said, I really need to kind of also state that sometimes inmates can't get money on their books. And I don't know that that's true or not true with Tupac, but if it's true that he didn't have any money on his books, there may have been a reason for that. And that reason is because many inmates get ordered to pay restitution to their victims when they get convicted of a crime. And that's actually a separate account. And so what they any money that they're to receive technically before they get any benefit from it goes to the account of the person that is getting the restitution. So there's two ways that you can actually pay money to an inmate. You can pay it on commissary or you can pay it on restitution. And if they have a big enough restitution, I'm not even sure that they're allowed to get commissary because they have a restitution. And until they pay that restitution back, they're not allowed to have commissary or any other money. So all of their money goes to the victim or to the person that they're paying restitution to. So that's how that works. I don't know, and I, it'd be interesting to get some feedback. So you all, again, you know, RJ Bond, what I know at Outlook.com. Hit me back and let me know if you've got any more information about the truth behind whether or not Tupac actually was able to receive money in jail, whether he was actually able to get money on his account. And then if he was able to get money on his account, I just really don't think that the, most of the people that I know that visited him in jail and kept in contact with him would have left him hanging or not giving him money on his account. I just... 
I don't believe it. Uh, you know, I, I'm not saying that Suge Knight is lying. Well, maybe I am saying Suge Knight is lying, kind of. So that wasn't the only thing, unfortunately, that Suge Knight was talking about. You know, you have the thing that he was walking in, you know, was a paralegal. And then we had a thing where he's talking about how nobody gave Tupac any money. But the other thing that is always still out there, and I don't know why it's out there, because it's, you know, we wrote, a, I think, the second assassination movie, we did something about it. Uh, and the third assassination movie, I know we did something about it. But there seems to be this belief out there by people that uh, Tupac's bail was posted by Suge Knight and by Death Row Records. So I get on the phone with him and she said, Suge, I'm so glad you took my call. See, everybody think I'm crazy. I said, I know they was telling me don't talk to you. She said, but we're really married. I can, I can show you the marriage certificate. I can show you this. I can show you that. I said, you don't got to do all that. Just tell me what you need. I thought she might need some bread or something. I would just give it to her. She said, look, Tupac's the only person can help him. It's you. Please come see him so you can get him out of prison. So I said, look, I got a anchor person on as we speak. I'll call my lawyer and get permission for us to go out to New York and then go see him. And I remember the first time I got there to go see him, Park came out, he had passes in the head, you know, you could tell he was stressing. So he sat down and talked to me, he was real happy, he was like, look, Blood like the dead, I'm not gonna rap no more. While people looking, so I like slamming my hands on the thing. So, hey, look, that's how we came up with the thing. All lies on me. While I can't say that Suge Knight and Death Row Records may not have been somehow instrumental in channeling the request for the money from Interscope and from the others who actually paid it into Tupac's account, um, even if that I, I don't even believe that because of the structure and the nature in which the court case and the bail had to be put up. Um, at the time that the bail was put up, um, that it had to be put up very, very, very early. And, and actually, right as Tupac was going in into prison. And the truth, as I know it, comes from Atron Gregory, who used to be Tupac's manager before he went to Death Row Records. Anytime Tupac went to jail, I always got called. And because things were so busy during that time period, I uh, refused to go to Lamaze class when my wife was pregnant. So the compromise was that we would hire a person to come to the house and be there all day, with, all day long with us, and we'd do the whole Lamaze class in one day. But of course, when that person came at 9 o'clock, I got a call at 9.30 that Tupac had been in jail all night, and you need to go down and bail him out. So I totally missed Lamar's class because I had to go bail Tupac out of jail. So I got called every time Tupac went to jail. Got to the point where I had a Bell's Bondsman on speed dial. It got to the point where I had a Bell's Bondsman on speed dial. And he knew me and he knew our money was good. So anytime Tupac or, or any of the guys got in trouble, and usually it was Tupac and then Man Man would have to get bailed out also, that I'd call and, and get them bailed out right away. So the idea that Tupac was languishing in prison and he needed to get out and suddenly Suge Knight woke up and bailed him out and grabbed a bunch of money. And even if he woke up and rallied a whole bunch of other people to give money to take Tupac out of prison to post his bail, that's actually not accurate and not in line with what we believe to be the truth. And <clears throat> Atron Gregory had told me many times, this is what I know, Atron Gregory had told me many times that, you know, no, 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 Death Row had nothing to do with Tupac's bail, nothing to do with Death Row. So I thought, well, 
I really need to actually understand why that is, why that couldn't be possible. Once Tupac was convicted in New York and he was sent to prison, we immediately hired a group of lawyers to start the appeal process. Part of the appeal process is setting up a bail in advance of the possibility of him being granted release pending appeal. The money was in place prior to Tupac being granted the opportunity to be released on appeal. There's a group of judges in New York that he'll, hears all appeals. His appeal was worked on during the summer, but the judges also took vac vacation. And once they came off vacation, then they started looking at all the different appellate court rulings that they had to go through. One of them was Tupac's appeal. And once his, his appeal was granted, then he was able to be released on bail, but that bail was set up long, long before he was granted the opportunity to be released pending the appeal. There are a group of people that put Tupac's bail up, including Interscope Records. Friends? Yeah, yeah a group of friends, yeah. Suge? No. No, Suge never put Tupac's bail up because Suge was not in Tupac's life or business prior to him being released from prison. Inter Interscope put up some of the Interscope put up some of the money along with some friends of Tupac's as well. And you're also going to hear Shock G confirm it himself that uh, Death Row had nothing to do with the bail. So, why don't you take a listen and then we can talk about it afterwards. Thanks. It's not so much that he used to deny it, but he just never admitted it just to he was using that to to have sympathy to get sympathy i'm all in jail i don't get to see my niggas nobody visited me in jail he said some interview he said that made a lot of people mad it even made it into the movie that hardly no one visited him that's total bullshit i used to drive up there from the poconos where i lived at that at the time i drive up there every weekend matter of fact we we used to circulate the information of who went up there because it was a matter of, he used to say his cell was so small, his isolated cell was so small he couldn't do push-ups in it, barely do push-ups. So only time he got to really stretch out was when they had him in the yard. When he had yard or visiting privileges, excuse me, he didn't have no yard privileges because he could cause too much of a commotion. They said whether it was love or hate, there was always too much commotion around him. So they didn't want him to get killed or they didn't want him to be overpraised and give him too much power. They didn't know what to do with him, so they kept him in isolation. In isolation, he didn't have enough room in his cell to barely do push-ups, he said. He couldn't stretch out in it. So the only time he got to stretch out and have, you know, was at visiting table. So we kept a constant flow. Who's going up there Thursday? Oh, oh, she got him. All right, cool, cool. Yeah, Mommy's going. Um, Man Man's going Thursday. We still shit. And Atron's gonna go Friday. We need somebody for Saturday. I got him. All right, you going Saturday? You can. You sure you can go? Yep, I got him. Okay, well, who who we got for Sunday? We used to do it like that to make sure that daily somebody visited him. The whole time he was at Danamora. Yep. So 
finally it's, it comes from his mouth. <laughs> That's good to know, Nick. Thanks, man. I had never seen that before either. Appreciate you. No, I wasn't there every day, but I visited Tupac quite a bit in prison. I visited him. I visited Tupac several times in prison. And he was there for nine months, and you were going a few times. I, I, I would go there at least at least two times a month. I would go there. I go to I go visit him in prison at least two times a month. And he always had somebody there, right? He always had people there. Primarily, it was the outlaws. They, there was a hotel there that they would stay at, and he never wanted to be in the cell, which, you know, is understandable. So we made sure that there was someone there all the time that he had visiting hours. There was always somebody there. Another myth is that Suge bailed him out. That's not true. Suge didn't bail him out. Four people did. Uh, Atron, our manager, um, Jasmine Guy, um, Madonna, and the fourth one, I think, was Jada. I'm not sure exactly who the fourth one was. Uh, 75000 each to make the 300000 which was the 10% of the $3 million, which his bail was. People that had collateral to, that could vouch for his uh, appearance in court put up 10%, which was $300,000. They put up seventy five grand each. And... It was Madonna, because he was dating her right before he went to jail. It was Jasmine Guy, a girl he used to date, and a good friend. And Adrian, our, our, our mutual manager, used to be Easy e and Dre and Cube and them's road manager when NWA first started. But then Jerry Heller was making all the money because he had ruthless records. So Atron realized being a role manager didn't really put you on. What put you on was having a label. So he created TNT Records, left NWA. His first act was Digital Underground, and his second act was Tupac Shakur. And he had a few other people on the label too, Gold Money, which was Pee Wee's group, uh, Funky Aztecs, this Mexican group. He had a handful of people, but the two star acts on his label was me and Pac. And eventually Pac was the, the huge superstar on his label. Yup, but he did that to make money, you know, because being a tour manager, you just get a salary. You don't get a percentage. Being management, you get a, a salary, a percentage. I mean a percentage, yeah. That's the deal. But them four bailed him out. You could go look that up. That's paperwork. Paperwork official. <laughs> So as you can tell, Atrium Gregory and Shock G did have a lot to say about it. But, you know, somebody else had something to say about it, too, and that was Tracy Robinson. So I'm going to kind of lay it down and conclude this piece with this clip from Tracy Robinson. I'll catch you in a minute. So the, uh, you've got this energy that God has given you, and people recognize it, good people and bad people, and they pounce on your energy. They pounce on your history that helps make you who you are, and they want to um, smother your fire, your shine, which is what they did to him. They smothered it. But unbeknownst to them, his energy is unbelievably powerful in his not being here. But, you know, from him, you know, before the Rikers, after the Rikers, Danamora, after Danamora, I mean, I visited him. I took a trip. I just, one day I was like, I got to go to New York and see Pac. I just gotta go, and took the trip up there. Was it 
great drive. Um, I went with a friend of mine, Judy, and with Gobi, and we went, and I went in and saw him. Shock G was there, and we just, he was just like so happy to see me, and I was happy, to, happy, sad to see him. You know, it wasn't like behind bars, you get to, you know, sit at a table and talk across from each other, but he was definitely like, wow, Tracy Robinson, you actually came to see me. I'm like, yeah. And I'm like, yeah. Yeah, this is it. This is the end of the show. I'm R.J. Bonnet. I want to thank you for tuning in to the show today. We'll do it again next week. The days kind of differ when we release it, but we get it out there for you because it's important, and we try to stay relevant with what's happening for the week. But until next time, this is R.J. Bond, and that's what I know. What I know, Martin Productions production, copyright 2019. We'll see you next week.